0: I'm Mike Kozer, and this is Lost Ballparks. A podcast that takes you on a journey to the golden age of baseball's lost ballparks.
1: Join us now for another Brooklyn ball game here at Ebbets Field, Brooklyn, U.S.A. Greetings, baseball fans. This is Mel Allen, greeting you from Yankee Stadium in New York City. Hello, everyone, with Bob Prince and Nellie King. This is Gene Osford speaking to you from Forbes Field in Pittsburgh. Well, friends, here we are back at the Polo Grounds in New York City. We're underway in the first of a double doubleheader at Tiger Stadium, and it's baseball here at Crosley Field. Just the start of thing. So pull up a comfortable chair. If you want to take your shoes off, go ahead, wiggle your toes, and we hope you'll have a cold shape or two throughout the evening.
0: Welcome to episode five of the Lost Ballparks podcast. So there were a few baseball cards growing up that in my collection meant more to me than any other. One of them was Rod Carew. Rod Carew was a lifetime 328 hitter. He finished his 19-year career with 3,053 hits, was AL Rookie of the Year, an 18-time All-Star, An AL MVP trophy that he collected in 1977, seven-time batting champion, only Ty Cobb and Honus Wagner had more, and a first ballot inductee into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Rod Carew is our guest today on Lost Ballparks. Hi, Mike. Rod Carew, how are you?
1: I'm good. I am good. I'm just enjoying life right now.
0: Uh, Grew up watching you play. Was it Tinker Field when you were with the Orlando Twins? And it was one of my first games. So this is like a full circle moment for me. And I'm just thrilled to be able to talk to you today.
1: Wow. Thank you.
0: In your book, One Tough Out, which is a great read, by the way, and it's available at Amazon.com, you talk about growing up in Panama. You and your buddies would use broomsticks to hit bottle caps with, and you would customize your broomsticks with players' names. What player did you have on your bat?
1: Yeah. So I had Jackie Robinson on one and... um... Ted Williams on one, and Roy Campanella on the other one.
0: You would listen to World Series games in Panama on Armed Forces Radio, correct?
1: Right, yeah. This is the American Forces Network. Another bright, brilliant fall afternoon here in Yankee
0: Stadium with the temperature in the high 60s, the sun shining brightly. That was your connection to Major League Baseball, right?
1: Yeah. The thing that I wondered about was when the guys would come on and say, Oh, we have 50,000 people at the game today. And I said to myself, that must be a tape they're playing to try and get me interested with the crowd noise and stuff like that. So I uh, decided that when I got the opportunity to play, I'm going to see if 50,000 people come to the ball games, And sure enough, they do, you know, I used to concentrate 50,000 people. I couldn't imagine that many people.
0: because right, in the know, town seven, you grew up in Panama. How many people like four, three, four thousand?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's it.
0: So in your late teens, You then moved from Panama to Washington Heights in New York and would play baseball at Macomb's Dam Park, which was so close to old Yankee Stadium. So as a kid, as a kid growing up in Panama, I mean, you're like I said, you're only able to listen to baseball games on the radio. And now you're in a park next to, I mean, literally in the shadow of Yankee Stadium and those great Yankee ball clubs.
1: I was like in awe of that place. And I never went in to watch a ball game, but I played outside of the stadium a lot.
0: And you're probably as a kid are thinking, oh, my gosh, OK, that's where Mickey Mantle lives. You know, like that's where he yeah, that's where he plays. Yeah. And at some point in the early 60s, I think you mentioned in your book that Willie Mays and the now San Francisco Giants were back in town to play the Mets at the polo grounds. And you got a chance to go. First of all, do you remember how you got to the game?
1: I just walked to the stadium, you know, because I wasn't living too far from it. So, you know, as a kid, you know, you, you
0: just walk. What do you remember about the polo grass?
1: I remember sitting in the bleachers. I didn't have money to pay for good seats. So I sat in the bleachers and, you know, I watched Willie Mays from, you know, like right there in front of me and making these catches and, and throwing yeah, a great arm.
0: You're out by the clubhouse in the bleachers. Yeah. And, and you're literally where I would have had a perfect vantage point six years or a few years earlier when he makes that catch in the 1954 World Series against the Indians.
1: Yes. There's a long drive way back in center field, way back, back. It is by Willie Mays. Just brought this down to a beat with a catch, which must have been an optical illusion to a lot of people. It was a nice park too, you know. And I mean, I enjoyed. Yeah, I bet. You know, but I, I was working as a kid in the grocery store, and so I couldn't take off any time and go.
0: So in high school, you're playing on a Sandlot team, the New York Cavaliers. And while on that team, you were discovered by a twin scout. In fact, the games that he watched you play, I think you went like eight for nine with a bunch of doubles, a grand slam. The scout informs you that he would like you to try out the next time the twins are in town to play the Yankees at Yankee Stadium. And I'm just wondering, because you would have been maybe 17, 18, walking into the clubhouse at Yankee, at Yankee Stadium. And at St. Harmon Killebrew. Right. Tony Oliva. That day in the cage, you absolutely raked. I mean, you were crushing balls, but I can't imagine how nervous you must have been. Maybe you weren't, but I would think, you know, given the surroundings and the people that you're next to.
1: Well, I wasn't because, you know, baseball is, a you know, that was my outlet of what I thought about playing when I was young. And, So um, I was like, you know, I just went in there like I was a veteran into the batting cages and took batting practice. The guys were surprised that as a skinny little kid that I could hit the ball that far.
0: In fact, you're hitting the ball so hard that at one point the twins are like, get him out of the cage because they're worried that the Yankees will sign you.
1: Right. I figured I must be doing something right. Right. (laughs) You know, so they knew that I could swing the bat. So now they had to try and talk me into signing with the team.
0: It's amazing, though. I, I think about what kind of level of concentration you must have had, because here you are. Let's just, you know, go back to the early 60s. This is pre-renovation at the old Yankee Stadium when, the you know, they had iconic freezes surrounding the ballpark. Um, yeah. You know, this place that you had only listened to on the radio. Now you're standing there and you're able to zero in and just concentrate on the pitches being thrown to you and you just start crushing the ball.
1: Yeah. But you know what? To me, it was like I was playing uh, sandlot ball with my buddies. I wasn't in awe of uh, standing, flailing, and swinging a bat because I knew that I could hit.
0: And you'd done it your whole life?
1: Yeah, I've done it my whole life, ever since I was about seven years old. It came easy to me because God gave me the ability to do things that a lot of guys... uh,
0: Yeah, only dream uh, about. Yeah. Yeah. The day after you graduate from high school, the Twins make an offer to you, $5,000 signing bonus, $400 a month salary. And that was the beginning of one of baseball's most remarkable careers. And I imagine that you'll always have a soft spot in your heart for Baltimore's Memorial Stadium because on April 11th, 1967, the Twins are playing the Orioles and you get your first head off Dave McNally. Yeah,
1: yeah. And, you know, then I was nervous. You know, I was like, you know, here's one of the best pitches in the game. And that whole staff was unreal to, to hit off of.
0: Jim Palmer, Cuellar.
1: Wally Bunker.
0: Yeah. What do you remember about that first hit, about making contact?
1: When I hit the ball on the ground, I knew I had a chance to beat it out because it was going up the middle. And Melandro was playing me to hit the ball more than left field. And so when I touch that bag, I says, "Okay, give me the ball. You know, I want the ball. Do you still have the ball? I think it's in the Hall of Fame.
0: Wow. Amazing. By by the way, as a side note, in your 20th game, just to show you how quickly you lit on fire, 20th game in the majors, you went five for five.
1: Yeah, I could hit. Yeah. (laughs) God gave me that talent and he says, "Okay, young man, go and do a performance for me.
0: Well, you did. You certainly did. And when you get called up to, in 67, to the Twins, their home ballpark at the time is Metropolitan Stadium.
1: Right. You know, from the outside, it looked like a great stadium, but not as polished as, say, the Yankee Stadium or Detroit, you know, which was a great park to play in.
0: Oh, yeah, Tiger Stadium, sure.
1: I got accustomed to playing there, and it became one of my favorite parks to play in.
0: It had some unique attributes. I mean, obviously, the scoreboard and right field and the way the left field seats were set up.
1: Yeah, I said, well, here we go. I'm home now. I'm, and I was really thinking about doing well because I didn't want to be sent out because you know back then they could take 28 players north. And then the first month they cut down to 25 limits.
0: Yeah, I can't imagine anybody would think Rod Carew needs more work. I mean, are you kidding? <laughs>
1: Well, no, I did, especially fielding, because I wasn't a great fielder when I came to the big leagues. I had to learn a lot. So Billy Martin took me under his wing and taught me everything about playing second base, turning double play. You know, he he was my teacher.
0: Your rookie year, by the way, your teammate Harmon Killebrew hit 44 home runs, including, as you said in your book, one of the longest home runs you had ever seen, a 522-foot home run blast at Metropolitan Stadium. You were on second base at the time when it happened.
1: I said to myself, you've got to be kidding me. That's <laughs> a long way, long way up there. You know, I was like amazed at the, the power that Iron had. Because the next day, he hit another one just over to the right of it. That was another big blast. They didn't mark that one.
0: But just the ball sounded different off his bat, especially that day.
1: Yeah, I wish my balls could have sounded like that.
0: I think plenty of them did. In July of 1967, you made your first All-Star team.
1: There they go. The American League All-Stars take the field. And the huge capacity crowd comes
0: alive. The game was at Angel Stadium. And you walk into the clubhouse. And who do you see?
1: Palmer.
0: Jim Palmer.
1: Right. I didn't look those guys in the eyes. I just kind of put my head down and say, hey, it's good to meet you. Headed for my locker to put my uniform on.
0: But that's got to be a pretty uh, surreal moment, right, to be with a lot of the oh, guys geez, that maybe you yeah. grew up watching. and
1: Yeah, especially when I went out on the field and here is Hank Aaron and Willie and Mick. I'm saying to myself, you know, you've made it to play with. With the big boys. Now.
0: Yeah. They've gone from being your heroes to being your contemporaries. Yeah. Your teammates.
1: Yeah, it was just amazing. You know, it's it's every kid's dream that wants to play the game, to be on the same field with the guys that he grew up admiring and watching every single day.
0: And then in 1968, you're playing in your second straight all-star game at the Astrodome in Houston, and you hear that Roberto Clemente is looking for you.
1: Yeah. I was standing, talking to Killebrew. Uh, Tony came over.
0: Tony Oliva.
1: Yeah. He says that Roberto would like to say a few words.
0: Wow. He says,
1: oh, great. <laughs> and so when I went over to meet him, he said that Tony had told him that I'm going to be a superstar one day in this league and how I could hit. And I ran like a deer. And he told me that as long as you're in the big leagues, try and invite all the younger Latin players when you see them, and so I started like inviting guys over to my house for lunch and dinner. and
0: He wanted you to pay it forward, huh?
1: Yeah, he he knew that these kids were going to be coming, and he might not be around long enough to take care of them. So he asked me to guide him into doing the right thing and wow. things and stuff like that.
0: Well, and then a couple years into your career, you're also at an off-season event. And after years of collecting his baseball cards, after uh, having his name engraved on your broomstick that you used to hit bottle caps in Panama, you're now face to face with your childhood hero, Jackie Robinson.
1: Oh, that was one of the coolest experiences that I went through. You know, um, here's a man that fought for everybody, black and white. And I'm meeting him. He was the god of baseball. He was put through so much stuff, and he responded the way that Branch Rickey wanted him to respond. You know, and it was so exciting to meet him.
0: That's an experience I'm sure you'll never forget. Oh, no. Yeah. In 1969...
1: It's a chilly but bright, sunshiny day at Metropolitan Stadium in Bloomington, Minnesota.
0: You, Rod Carew, are absolutely on fire. You finished the season batting three thirty-two, won your first batting title. But what really caught people's attention that year was that you single-handedly brought back one of the great plays in baseball, the straight steal of home. In fact, you finished your career with 17 steals of home, but it all began in 1969.
1: That was the Billy Martin era. And he came to me and he says, you know, you're going to have a great year. I'm going to spend a lot of time with you. We're going to continue to work at second base. And he says, there's one thing I want you to learn how to do. He says, I'd like you to learn how to steal home.
0: What did you think when he said that?
1: I thought he was crazy. (laughs)
0: Yeah,
1: You know, but then when he started saying, we'll have uh, a sign and give it to the hitter so that the hitter will know that you're coming. But he also has to, to answer you so that you know that the coast is clear. One time I did. And Killebrew forgot that, that he had answered me.
0: Harmon Killebrew, yeah, well, that could have been bad. If he doesn't realize that you're coming in to home and he swings, <laughs> oh, man. Yeah.
1: So a couple of guys from the National League have said, oh, you know, I'm just being a hot dog and, and stuff like that, looking for publicity. And, you know, it, it really ticked me off because here I am, my... Coach is teaching me how to keep this in my back pocket so that when we get into extra innings or something, that we could break it out and tie a ball game or win a ball game with my steal of home.
0: Well, and the other thing is, if you get known for that, what it does is it puts pressure on the pitcher, right? Because that's now in the back of his mind, and he may end up walking the guy or throwing a fat pitch to uh, the guy who's up.
1: Yeah. And that happened several times they forgot about concentrating on the hitter. And they were concentrating on me because I kept walking up and down the third base line. And the guys loved it because they were getting a lot of fastballs to hit. In
0: 1977... Minnesota's Rod Carew, making a lot of baseball history with his magic bat. You are really making a run at 400. At one point, this is crazy. When I saw this statistic, I had to look at it twice. You had 40 hits and 87 at-bats. In June at Metropolitan Stadium on Rod Carew Jersey Day, you single in the second inning, bringing your average to 400. And by July, your average is 415. You finish the season batting 388 with 239 hits. Of course, you win the AL MVP that year. What an incredible year.
1: Yeah, you know, it, it seemed like it was, you know, I was on another plane than all the guys in baseball. It seems that the ball was slowing down when it was coming up to home plate, saying, hit me, hit me. And I'll tell you, what, I said, OK, I'm going to hit you. And then I could see that the middle infielders, uh, just at the last second, they would move. And sometimes I would hit the balls in their direction. And because they moved a couple of steps, got me a lot of base hits doing that.
0: You weren't just a great hitter. You were a precise hitter and that you could do things that very few hitters in baseball history could do. And that brings me to this story, which is legendary. One day, you're at Yankee Stadium facing Catfish Hunter, and before the game, you have a conversation with then-Yankee catcher Thurman Monson. <laughs> do, you, do you remember yeah. that conversation?
1: Yeah. I had gotten three hits the night before. So he looked at me and says, Well, you got three last night, big boy. What did you even get tonight? I said, I don't know, a couple more. I said, no. He said, we're going to get you out. Catfish knows how to pitch you, and we're going to get you out tonight. I says, nah, he doesn't know how to pitch me. I says, I know everything that he throws and in what situations. And so I says, I'll tell you what I'll do tonight. I will call the pitches, and I'll call the pitch that I'm going to hit, like just when he released the pitch out of his hands. Right. He said, oh, come on. You're crazy, man. <laughs> so – walked up to home plate. First thing he did was untie my shoelaces, throw dirt on it. I said, hey, Thurman, earlier I told you that I'm going to show you something that's going to blow your mind. And I said, tonight, I'm going to call the pitches that he throws me, and I'm going to call the pitch that I get a base hit off of and where it's going. Catfish the first pitch, and I yelled out, fastball down, and in, just as he's releasing the pitch. <laughs> And it was a fastball down on him. On the second pitch, I called slider down and in. So he goes out to the mound and tells Catfish that I would just
0: call both of the pitches. He thinks and you're he, peeking. He thinks you're looking back at him.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think that because of my stance that I could see his signs. And I told him, I says, hey, I don't have to see your signs. I says, but I'm going to tell you what. This is the one that's going to blow your mind. He oh, yeah. <laughs> we'll see. I said, okay. So he squatted down behind the plate and I says, okay. Catfish goes into the windup and he gets ready to release and I yelled out, fastball, outer half, face it to left field. So I got a double and <laughs> I scored and he looked at me says, Rod, how you do that, Rodney? And I says, hey, I told you, you know, I, I'm good. Yeah. And so the next day I was standing by the cage. And he comes out of the dugout, and he pats me on the back. He says, man, that was pretty good last night. That was a trick, huh? I pulled my little black book out of my pocket. I gave it to him. I says, look through this and all my bats that I have against catfish. Same sequence of pitches.
0: Wow. You had been and keeping track, so you knew what was coming.
1: Yeah, yeah. And that's why I told him, he says, you've got to be kidding me. He says, I'm going to get me a little black book. I says, no, get a red one. <laughs> so, so when you pull it out, the guy's know it's danger that's going to happen.
0: There you go. That, you know. <laughs> oh, it's such a great story. I love that. Thurman was a character. Yeah, he was. So on August 4th, 1985, you're now a member of the Angels, and your former team, the Twins, are in town at Angel Stadium. The hitter extraordinaire goes after number 3,000. In front of a crowd of 41,630, Frank Viola is pitching. And you are at the plate in the third inning. American League's most valuable player, while a member of the Minnesota Twins. Looking for hit number 3,000. Rodney klein Carew. What do you remember about that day? I said, the
1: big lefty he got me today. And, you know, he, he was, uh, Frankie was a real good pitcher. Yeah, he was. And lefties didn't hit that well against him because he had this wind-up and he hit the ball well. And that could make you jumpy. So, you know, I just fouled pitches off, took pitches, fouled pitches off. And then he got me to two strikes. And he threw me a slider down a away that I just kind of flicked out into left field. The pitch. Swing the a line drive. base hit. There, team walk, hugging Rod Carew.
0: that was it hit number three thousand hit number three thousand and that had to feel yeah. good too because as you're chasing that right knowing that moment is coming that's kind of a stressful time a little bit right because you're you may be pressing yeah. a little bit
1: plus i was playing against the team that i started with and all the people back in minnesota were going to get a chance to see this Right. You know, all the people that followed me during my career there, they're going to get the treat of seeing me get my 3,000 hit. Harmon was doing the TV announcement. What are you thinking? You were there to see number one, you're here to see number 3,000. Harmon all choked up, that's amazing, isn't it? And so it was special, you know, it was really special. As you look at Carew getting the base hit... Ones Wagner, Carl Yastrzemski, Eddie Collins, Willie Mays, Ab Anson, Lou Brock, Al Kaline, and Roberto Clemente, and now Rod Carew.
0: It was the perfect team and the perfect time to do it. Yeah. Rod Carew, you look at these numbers, lifetime 328 hitter, 19-year career with 3,053 hits, AL Rookie of the Year, 18-time All-Star, oh, by the way, all as a starter, all in a row, yeah. AL MVP trophy, seven-time batting champion, only Ty Cobb and Honus Wagner had more, and a first ballot inductee into the Baseball Hall of Fame. And I love the fact that in 1991, when you get inducted, one of the first calls you made was to your mom, and she said what she had always said to you growing up. God is there for you.
1: That's what she said. She says, he's going to be in your back pocket all the time. He's going to take care of you.
0: What a great moment. Sure was. You know, you have a lot of, obviously, great baseball memorabilia, things that are important to you. But if you got sent to an island and you could only take one piece of baseball memorabilia with you, what would it be? What's your favorite?
1: The Roberto Clemente Award, because it's for helping people. Mm. And that's what what Roberto did. That's how he died, you know, um, trying to take food and medicine back for those people that that were starving after the— hurricanes.
0: And I learned about
1: doing things in the community and so I just thought that
0: uh, Pay it forward, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Rod Carew, thank you so much for the time today and uh, being able to revisit your incredible career, talk a little baseball, talk about some of the great old lost ballparks that you played in. Uh, It has been a great trip down memory lane for me and I'm sure for many others.
1: Well, thanks, pal. For me, too, you know, because I like talking about things that I've seen playing this game, the different players that um, I played against that I grew up admiring and was able to be on the same field with. So yeah, this was great for me, too, also.
0: Yeah. And listen, I will encourage folks to go to Amazon.com. And if you haven't already read Rod Carew's book, One Tough Out, you've got to read it. It's a real fascinating story talking, you know, from the beginning of your life, all the way to where you're at right now. And it is well worth the time to uh, check that out at amazon.com. Rod Carew, thank you so much.
1: Thank you. You know, look, before we go, I, I just want to mention that Reggie gave me the name for for that book.
0: Reggie Jackson.
1: Yeah. Oh, wow. Because he was going to write something on the forward and then he put, I uh, do out. And then I told my agent, I says, Hey, why don't you use this for the name of the book? And it's, uh, It's a great piece of Reggie's experience watching me play the game.
0: Well, yeah, because he knew. He knew after playing with you that you were indeed one tough out. Yeah. Well, again, it's available on Amazon.com. Rod Carew, thank you so much for the time. I wish you and your family all the best. Thank you, buddy. I appreciate it. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Good health. You too. Again, there are moments when I'm doing this podcast where I literally have to pinch myself. I can't tell you how many cards I had of Rod Carew that I collected growing up, but having him on the podcast today uh, meant a lot, meant a lot to me. So hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't already, please take a moment and hit the subscribe button. It's free on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on. And as we mentioned last week, if you like what you're hearing, please let us know by leaving a review and rating of the podcast. I really appreciate it. Next week on Lost Ballparks, Hall of Famer and San Francisco Giants play-by-play man, John Miller. He's been broadcasting Major League Baseball games for nearly 50 years. For two decades, he and Joe Morgan did the ESPN Sunday Night Game of the Week. And naturally, after a career of that length, he's been to many old Lost Ballparks, including one...
1: They used to have uh, these uh, flamethrowers that they would bring out. (laughs) to try to dry off the dirt on the infield after the rain delay had ended.
0: (laughs) Don't miss John Miller next week on Boss Ballparks.